Can you say Zazie? Can you say Wag? Who's on our show today? Welcome to Bark's Podcast, featuring news, interviews, and information from the pet industry, bringing you news about latest events and seminars, as well as interviews from some of the best in force-free and behavioral science-based training. We aim to create a fun, educational, and informative podcast that is member-focused. So come along and join us. Bring your questions, expertise, and a dash of humor. And this is Nikki Tudge, who is flying solo today because my colleague and fellow presenter, Louise Stapleton-Frappel, is currently experiencing really bad internet thanks to the pandemic and her living situation in Spain. So let's get right to it. Dr. Zazie Todd has a PhD in psychology from the University of Nottingham in England and an MFA in creative writing. Her book, WAG, The Science of Making Your Dog Happy, with a foreword by Dr. Marty Becker, is published by Greystone Books. She is the creator of Companion Animal Psychology, a blog about how to have happy cats and dogs. According to Science, Zazie Todd won the 2017 Captain Haggerty Award from the Dog Writers Association of America for her article, The Ultimate Dog Training Tip. Zazie is not just an academic. She graduated with honors from Jean Donaldson's Academy of Dog Trainers which is the Harvard of dog training, and has a certificate of feline behavior with distinction from international cat care. She is a shelter affiliate member of the IAABC, a multi-species professional member of the Pet Professional Guild, and a volunteer at the British Columbia SPCA. She's also an affiliate member of the American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior. Dr. Todd grew up in Leeds in the north of England and now lives in Maple Ridge, BC, Canada with her husband and two cats. Welcome to the show. I have to tell you, I'm really excited to chat to you. So thank you for, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. And I'm actually really excited to chat with you too. So that's awesome. <laughs> Isn't it funny, but um, I just, I don't know why, but I don't know if it's because we're both English or because I, I don't know, I just feel like I know you. And when you, sometimes when you talk to some people, you, there's a level of familiarity there and you think, well, I've never actually spoken to them before or I've only spoken to them once, but just because you see them around on Facebook and you sort of read the book and you get to feel that you know them. So it's, it's really nice to catch up with you. And I know, I think actually the very first time we spoke on the phone, it did feel like we knew each other. And I think it's because I've seen your name in so many different places um, beforehand. But I'm sure being English helps a bit, too, because we've got the same same cultural background. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I always like to ask people, because I love I always love backstories and I'm always very interested to find out what motivates people to do what they actually do, because there's always a passion behind it. But before we get to the passion, because there's clearly passion with the blog and the book and everything else that you do, how did you get from England to Canada? How did that how did that manifest itself? It's kind of a long story because I first came to Vancouver way, way back when I was a PhD student at the University of Nottingham. And I came to a conference uh, to present a poster and I'd never been here before. I'd 
been to Canada once before. I've been to Toronto, but I'd never been to Vancouver. And my husband came too for a holiday while we were here. And we added a bit of time on after the conference to stay for vacation. And we fell absolutely in love with Vancouver and thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to go and live there someday? And we used to keep coming to Vancouver for holidays um, and sometimes for fairly extended periods of time. And then one day we always thought we'd like to come here. And then one day my husband's then company that he worked for bought up a Canadian company based in Vancouver. And so he his work transferred to Vancouver, which perfect. was perfect. perfect. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely perfect. So then we came and obviously we, we now live in Maple Ridge, which is just outside of Vancouver. And, and we're quite rural where we are. And it, it's just lovely. It's really nice. Yeah, it's funny because we often I mean, I got to the US for a very long story about how I got to the US. And my husband's American and I actually met him in Nigeria. And he did not want to come back to the US. He wanted to go to Vancouver because he is a massive sailor. And the sailing there is absolutely fabulous. And my first job in the US was in Hawaii. And I worked for Fairmont Hotels and Resorts, whose head office is in Toronto, but many of their execs live in Vancouver. Mm. It was an area that we were, my husband was constantly like, let's go to Vancouver. And to be honest with you, I, I, I think, I'm so spoiled by hot climates now. I'm just not sure I could go anywhere where the weather drops below 75 degrees. <laughs> well, where we are, because we're a little bit inland of Vancouver, we do get snow and I, I like getting the snow in the winter. But I'll be honest, I would struggle with the cold that the rest of Canada gets through the winter. Yeah. It would be a bit too much for me. And the summers here are lovely. They're lovely and warm, which is really nice. Yeah, I do, I do like Canada. I, I was offered a job then many years ago at the um, King, King Edward in Toronto. And I was also offered a job in Cairo at the same time. And it was like, oh, no, where do I choose? And I, I gravitated towards Cairo. So that's sort of uh, one door opens, another one closes. So talk, talk to me about university, because at university you studied psychology, but it wasn't it was sort of human focus, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. So my PhD is in social psychology and uh, actually the social psychology of, of language and how people use metaphor to talk because people use metaphor all the time without realizing it. We think of it as something that's just poetic, mm -hmm. but actually we're using metaphors all the time and they structure our thought. They even structure how we think about dogs. Yeah. So it is still relevant to, to what I do now. And, and I, I use my psychology all the time actually when I'm writing, but yeah, it was, it was social psychology and I wasn't really even a dog person back then. I was very much a cat person and only a cat person. And it was a while before I fell in love with dogs because I had actually been terrified of them as a child which I know is a, a funny thing now um, but but I was and so it took me a while to fall in love with dogs and it's actually really nice for me now that I've ended up where I am it's like everything's come together because I draw on the psychology and I draw on my writing when, when we arrived in Vancouver I did an MFA creative writing and to bring that together with dogs and cats has been really nice for me. Right. Is, well, ha, so, so talk to me about how you first got into dogs, because I was always a cat person. I didn't have a dog until I was 35. Um, but I traveled the world with two Persians. They went from Jordan to Cairo to Nigeria to South Africa to Hawaii. And I never thought I'd become a dog person. And I did. Um, and actually developed some very serious allergy to cats in later life. So can't have them now, which is a shame. But mm. how did you transition from cats to dogs? How did that well, I do still have two cats, yep. so I am still a cat person. It's like I, I'm both. And 
I, I stopped, I managed to stop being afraid of dogs. I actually had to deliberately train myself not, not to be afraid of dogs. And then I just fell in love with them, but I wanted one for a very long time and it just wasn't possible because I worked long hours. I traveled a lot for work. I didn't think it was gonna be right to bring a dog in, into that kind of lifestyle. And it was only after we arrived in Canada and I wasn't doing the same kind of work and I was home a lot more. I thought, oh, now we could get a dog. I had spent years and years wanting a Siberian Husky mm -hmm. um, and Ghost, who was part Siberian Husky, part Alaskan Malamute, was actually absolutely perfect. We adopted him from, from Vancouver and he was lovely. Uh, but he really needed another dog. So within just six weeks of getting him, we, we rushed out to get another dog and we got Bodger, who was an Aussie. And sadly, neither of them is with us now because Bodger passed in February. Yeah, I um, that. But yeah yeah you know, it's funny because your backstory is so similar to mine because like, we never had dogs as children i got bitten by a german shepherd on a beach in cornwall as a young kid and still have scars on my hands so it was always very mm. i wasn't nervous of them but i certainly didn't sort of engage with them um and i didn't choose to get a dog in later life because i was traveling a lot and with my cats i could pop them up. they used to fly next to me on the seat in the airplane that was always a lot easier oh. <laughs> and then when i got to hawaii i got a kelpie because i just liked the look of them and in Hawaii, you didn't have to quarantine animals if you brought them in from Australia uh, because they're islands, they have a quarantine law. So obviously I got a Kelpie, but yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? How we sort of transition through pets and the, and the life decisions we make. Cause I've had dogs ever since and now just love Aussies. I mean, they're certainly my breed of choice, but isn't it interesting how you said that you wanted the, was it the Husky? Because yeah. that, that was obviously an emotional um, choice based on looks appearance yeah absolutely yeah. yes I thought they looked absolutely beautiful yeah. Yeah. Um, and also there was uh, the TV husky uh, Canadian uh, Baker. Um, from the TV from the TV show who actually obviously in real life was many many different Siberian Huskies but I thought they were beautiful wonderful dogs and yes it, it was entirely based on looks and whenever I read about them I read that they're not for first-time dog owners and, <laughs> well, I thought, never mind and ignored that exactly. <laughs> I think it's the kind of thing we all do isn't it yeah. Me with a Kelpie. I mean, I worked. I was managing a five-star hotel, working 16 hours a day. What was I thinking? And uh, my husband had just retired from the State Department, and he was at home with the dog, sort of saying, "Hang on a minute. Why am I raising a dog that I didn't choose to get because you chose it based on looks?" And this dog, which actually seriously got me into running, because this dog needed a significant amount of exercise. And if I was to redo that again, I certainly would not have chosen. Um, a Kelpie. It was a ridiculous decision for a first-time dog owner. It was mm. uh, not a wise decision. And now one of those decisions that we spend a lot of time educating pet owners about in terms of the dogs that they choose for their own lifestyles. But yeah, we've all made those mistakes, haven't we, as sort of first-time dog owners. I'm very, I have a lot of empathy for pet owners that and the choices they make with dogs because we've all been there and done it. We've Definitely. <laughs> So, so connect the dots to me then from the social psychology to joining Jean Donaldson's Academy, because you're not just an academic, you're also a highly competent dog trainer, having gone through Jean's program. So what was the motivation for Jean's program? Was that because you got two dogs and realized that you had more than you could handle? Or did that come before the dogs? Or how did, or did, the, or did the dogs sort of create a, a door opening into a life that you suddenly thought, wow, this is fascinating? 
I would say that the dogs opened doors really because I had a long, long time ago uh, when I was an academic, I had occasionally had students work on projects to do with pets and psychology um, or cats and psychology. And I kind of, it was always something I'd thought about but never really done. Mm -hmm. And so having had the dogs, it made me think more about that. And they had very different needs. And whenever I turned to read things about dogs or watch things about dogs on TV, because psychology includes a background in animal behavior, I was thinking like, huh, well, this doesn't fit with what I think I already know. <laughs> and I don't know dogs, but this doesn't make sense to me. And so I ended up doing a lot more research and came across Jean and I was incredibly lucky to study at the Academy for Dog Trainers which is just absolutely amazing and I thought I was pretty good at training dogs beforehand but I really wasn't it makes such a difference to how well you actually train so that was fantastic uh, really amazing I learned so much from that and also spent a lot of time volunteering at my local shelter with dogs and with the cats there wow. and I think it's been really useful and Throughout all of this time, I've been writing my blog companion, Animal Psychology, as well. So for me, it's been great to have the grounding in dog training and animal behavior at the same time as reading the science and thinking, well, how is this useful to ordinary people? Because so much of it is useful. It's really fascinating, but it's also incredibly useful to people and their ordinary lives with dogs. And I think that's brilliant. And so for me, being able to pull out those bits, especially and to tell people this might help or that might help. I think that's what I especially enjoy about it. Excellent. Did you did you blog first with with Psychology Today and then start your own blog or was it the other way around? How did those two? It was the other way around. I started my own blog, Companion Animal Psychology, and I wasn't even really sure at the beginning. I thought, I'll just try this and see how it goes. And then it seemed to be quite popular, so I kept on going. <laughs> and then from that, I got the blog at Psychology Today, which which is a lot of fun too. And I try to write a slightly more psychological post, obviously, on Psych Today, because it's more relevant to the readership. But yeah, so that's that's where that came from. And, and it's been a really fun thing to do and I feel very lucky to have been able to do it. Yeah well you know I mean you have an amazing skill with writing because you're I mean I know I followed your blog for quite a while and also on Psychology Today and you have which which shows a, it absolutely comes through in, in your new book the ability to sort of take science and present it in a way that is very easily understandable and entertaining and enjoyable and I think that there's sort of three difficult things to all sort of create a Gordian knot from because a lot of people either write very academically or they write sort of very in a very entertaining manner but they don't have the ability to pull all that together so um I think that I, that in my opinion is why that blog has been so successful um in Thank you. so yeah <laughs> Thank you that that's lovely to hear and when it came to writing wag the science of making your dog happy I had to really try and stay focused on what was relevant to happy dogs and I was lucky because with the original proposal I had an agent who kept saying to me Zazzy keep it focused keep it focused yeah. and then obviously through the editing process my editor also helped make me keep it very focused and keep it very readable and I think until you've actually written a book you don't realize how many people work so hard on it but I have to thank my editor and my agents because I say agents plural because I had one to start with and I have a new one now mm -hmm. because they've really helped me stay focused on, on what I wanted to do and, and, and I think that focus on happy dogs and how people can have happy dogs is, is for me the most important thing. Absolutely. And, that, and that's clearly the passion. I mean, it comes through in everything you say and do. So let's talk about the book, because I've written a couple of books and I know the books that I've written, I actually wrote for me. I mean, really, I went into them not caring if anybody read them. I just 
you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way. You have all this information and you're so passionate that you want other people to get it and to apply it that you just feel this overwhelming urge to put it on paper. So was that how the book came about? Or did somebody approach you and say, hey, Zazie, Zazie, you've got this fabulous blog. Let's figure out a way of sort of taking all that information and putting it into a book. How, how did that come I was about? really lucky because I was thinking some of this material might actually make a book. And I was thinking, well, some of this material isn't in a book. There isn't a book like this out there at the time that I was thinking about it. And then an agent actually happened to get in touch with me. She'd read something that I'd written and she'd seen me on Twitter and she said, are you by any chance thinking about writing a book? And I was like, yes, <laughs> actually I am. <laughs> this is perfect. But even from that moment, it, it took a while to pull it all together and um, to figure out exactly what it was going to be like and to do all the detailed planning. So for this, I had to write a proposal and a list of what all the chapters would be and what would be in them and write a sample chapter. And that's what got sent out to publishers. And then I was lucky to, to go with Greystone, who I think have helped make it into a very nice looking book, like an appealing yeah. book with a lovely cover and so on. So it's it took a very long time. <laughs> this has been years of work to, to pull it all together like this. But um, yeah, it really came out from some blog posts that I wrote. And I had a specific series of blog posts that I was writing. And, and partway through, I thought, I'm not going to finish this series. I'm going to wait and keep it to put it in a book. Um, yeah. And that's that's what happened. Yeah. So I'm just going to say the name of the, the name of the book again. So the book is Wag: The Science of Making Your Dog Happy. And I have read it. And I and I don't. I have to admit, I don't tend to read books from start to finish. I go through and read chapters and then sort of piece them all together. And I think the great thing about the book is that you can do that as well because the chapters are so um, sort of pertinent in their own individual topics that if you go through the the index, I mean, you know, I look at it and go, oh, dogs and children, that'd be great for great educational resource for dog gone safe for people that want to learn more about dogs and children but there's everything in him and you've even incorporated the science into it but again it's sort of woven through it in a really nice way that makes it just ideal for pet owners and um, I mean obviously as a pet professional I enjoyed it but it's absolutely suitable for anybody who has a dog thank you so it is aimed at dog owners and I tried to write it so that you could if you one if you're just about to get a dog you can start and it has advice on getting a dog and it takes you through different aspects of your dog's life so training and going to the vet and grooming and enrichment and going for dog walks right through to special needs dogs senior dogs and the end of life and obviously that was a hard chapter and I say right at the beginning of the book you can skip that chapter if you want to because right. obviously for some people that's a difficult topic but it's there because I think there are things people don't know or don't think about in advance and it really helps to know in advance, certainly from my own experience anyway. It's, so, uh, I'm, it's, amazing, yeah. it's amazing you just said that and I'm just going to sort of divert a little bit here because we did a two-day workshop here a couple of months ago with Colleen Ellis from the Pet Loss um, Centre and everybody who was there, like Lisa Wagner and Lorena Patti, um, and oh, it was just all, they were all kind of, Malena was there. And we were all amazed as experienced pet dog owners, how little we knew about the options and the choices and all the information that we needed to know about the end of a dog's life. I mean, it was an, and an, an, it's a fascinating topic. And I, I'm so glad you included that in the book because I just think, 
I know with my own dogs, I've um, I've lost three or four dogs, and there's a nice way of saying goodbye, and there's a really awful way of saying goodbye, and you want to be able to say goodbye in a way that you can look back and cherish it in years to come and not look back at it with regret. So I was really pleased to see that particular chapter in there. I think that's a really good inclusion, even though it's really difficult to either read or read, and I'm sure it was difficult to write when you've recently lost a dog. So. Yeah, so I, in that chapter, I write about the loss of ghost, and obviously since then we've we've lost Bodger. And you're right; I think there are different ways of saying goodbye, and we don't always get a choice either. Yeah. And we were very lucky with Bodger that we did get a choice because because we very almost lost him, and then he had emergency surgery, and we were very lucky to get an extra four and a half months. But you don't always have a choice. But I think it, it does help to know and to have some understanding because a lot of people have quite strong ideas but there's actually a lot of information that you can use which is is really helpful to know in advance yeah. because it's hard to take in when you're in that situation if something happens suddenly absolutely. it's really difficult absolutely so out of all the chapters which one do you think you enjoyed writing the most and and why that's really tough but I think the bits that I enjoyed writing the most were actually the stories about Ghost and Bodger and including those so most of the chapters they begin with a story about Ghost and Bodger there's kind of a rhythm to the chapters and then they end with tips to apply the science at home and I tried to put in stories that would be relevant to the science that I was writing about in that chapter and the bit that I loved the best was thinking about what their perfect days would be like which is towards the end of the book and that was just such a fun thing to think what would be Ghost's perfect day what yeah. would be yeah. Bodger's perfect day and they were different dogs so they're different things but some of the things would have been the same yeah absolutely but it is it's lovely I mean I you know I look to, I look to my left now and I've got whenever I've lost a dog my husband's taken my favorite photograph of them and had them done as a portrait and I I love being able to walk in my office and look up at those portraits and just think about when they were at their happiest what were they doing when they were mm. at their happiest and you know it's like when you lose a human isn't it I mean it just Memories are a nice thing. It's a lovely thing to be able to sort of go back and think about the wonderful times that you shared with them. So, yeah. And I was also, I mean, it, you, you're really honoured because Dr. Marty Becker as well. I mean, he wrote the foreword for the book, which is just fabulous as well, isn't it? Um, and I was so thrilled that he agreed to write the foreword. That that was really, really lovely of him. And also glad that in the chapter on the vet, because I, I interviewed him about Fear Free yeah. and what a difference that makes. Yeah. Because I, just even from my own experience, I think it makes a huge difference when you think about stress and what it's like for a dog going to the vet. And, and so I was incredibly lucky he wrote that and a, a huge fan of Fear Free and everything that Fear Free has done I think it, it it's just brilliant it's, it's it's a game changer I think for vet care and it's interesting because I, I I met him in Las Vegas a couple of years ago I went out to one of their meetings and we were walking down a hotel corridor and he, he was telling me the story of how he became motivated to do this that he sat into a doc on a Dr Karen overall presentation where Karen was talking about the fact that you know, veterinarians just completely overlook the emotional needs of animals because they're so focused on the physical. And he said in all his years, he, it just never occurred to him that they were so focused on the sort of internal medicine and the, and the physiological and making sure that they're physically fine that, you know, and the time now is we now need to be putting the importance on making sure that emotionally animals are okay and they're okay with what we're doing and we're sort of consent testing and we're creating these fabulous environments where they are 
where they feel more relaxed. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, how fascinating that you can go into a veterinary office now and from the minute you walk through the door, you've got staff that understand association and flooring and color schemes and music and just mm. all the, all those sort of management aspects that can just get the visit off on the right paw, so to speak. So, yeah. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And I think to even take a broader look as well and look at science and how science has changed in terms of how we think about animals experiencing emotion. And it, it just seems crazy to think of people saying that animals did not experience emotions. Um, and it's it's such a good thing that, that vets, as you say, are paying attention to this and dog trainers and dog owners and, and scientists to what animals experience and how they how they feel about things. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? Because I think, you know, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever doubted. I'm sure you have never doubted. When you look into the eyes of an animal, how can you ever doubt that they do not experience the same range of emotions that we do? But I think it's one of those topics. And I, I'm always very, very quick to defend pet owners and sort of the Joe public because I, I just don't think it's fair of us to blame them for a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't think there's enough education out there yet to expect that by osmosis they all understand and know this because a week does not go by that I don't speak to a pet owner where you see this huge light bulb go on. And I just, I find it, and I struggle with the concept that anybody would want to share their home with a pet and would not want to do right by them. And obviously, I mean, Dr. Susan Friedman says, when you know better, you do better. I mean, how pertinent is that? And that's why the book is so important and why getting that education out is so important because we do we have a, we've come a long long way particularly in the last five five years but I think we have a long way to go as well into yeah. getting that education out there so yeah. yeah I agree I mean we have come a really long way and there are lots of greats that we can thank for all their contributions to this field um, but at the same time there is still so much information out there that's not very good and people just don't know and you can't blame them for not knowing better when if they turn to the internet or they turn to the TV some of the things they see are just wrong and I think right. even when people might feel that they're wrong they think well this person they think this person knows what they're talking about and it can be quite difficult to Absolutely. kind of work through and figure out what is the right thing to do so I mean that was partly my motivation in writing this book and there are lots of other wonderful books out there about dogs too and, and I think it is making a difference and that makes it quite exciting to be working in this field is to see people really want to know this kind of information because they love their dogs, they really love their dogs and, and they want to make a difference to their dogs and, and it's fantastic. Absolutely. And like you said, you know, we always say you've got to defer to experts and when a pet owner tries to defer to an expert in an industry that is unregulated, so therefore there is no recognized body for experts, it's, um, it's a toss up what they're getting. And for many pet dog owners, they're doing what an expert tells them. It just so happens that that expert is using outdated information and potentially damaging information. So yeah. So yeah, I just thank you so much for writing the book. I mean, it's a fabulous book. I can see it behind your shoulder there on the bookshelf. I think it, <laughs> yes. it, thank it's, you. A, it's a really appealing book. I mean, it just looks really good and it's really well written. And like I said, you have this amazing skill of being able to sort of weave that science into a tapestry of entertainment and clearly your own experience with your own dogs comes out. So it's absolutely fabulous. Where where can people well let's 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 talk about how people can find you. So companionanimalpsychology.com is yes. your website, which the blogs are fabulous. So go there, don't run, don't walk, run and sign up, subscribe because the blogs are absolutely fabulous. 
And then obviously if people want to sort of look at um, human psychology, you, you, how often do you blog on psychology today? Is, that, is there a system or a structure or a, um, a routine or is it just whenever? I try to blog on psychology today once a month, um, but I always post on companion animal psychology when there is a post there. Nice. So you can follow everything that I do on companion animal psychology and, and it will give you links to anything that I'm doing anywhere else as well. Excellent. So now let's talk about the book. Where can folks get hold of the book? Obviously Amazon, but on your website, you've got a list of some great resources and locations as well. Yes, so if you go to companionanimalpsychology.com and click on the tab that says WAG, the science of making your dog happy, I have a whole list of links to purchase the book at different places, including links to your local independent bookstore, either in the US or in Canada, because I think it's quite important to support local bookstores at the moment, but also Amazon has it, Dogwise has it, um, lots of places have it, my local supermarket has it even, so it's quite easy oh, to get hold of. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. All right, so before we go, and I and I, I am going to make a commitment to get you back in a few months because I think there's so much more. I mean, we could literally do a podcast on each of these individual chapters. Maybe we should do like <laughs> one every two months and just delve into the individual chapters. If you if, you've got a platform now, so what what's the one thing that you would want pet dog owners to know? What do you think is the one thing that anyone listening to this podcast, other than they've got to go and get the book, what's the one thing <laughs> you think is really really important? The one thing I always pick is that you should use food to train your dog because I think when ordinary dog owners know that it will help them to avoid some of these dog trainers who are, as you say, are not regulated and it will help them avoid some of the pitfalls of going to an unregulated dog trainer who is going to tell you to do something else. If they're not using food to train your dog, you want to know why. And the other reason is that food is a great way to motivate your dog. There's research that shows that dogs will run faster to get a piece of sausage rather than a piece of kibble. <laughs> I love um, <laughs> I really love that. So they're very sensitive to the rewards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I will run faster for chocolate. <laughs> I'm sprinting. <laughs> yeah, so use food as positive reinforcement when your dog does something that you like or that you want them to do again. Excellent. Well, thank you for joining us. And I, I, I look forward to getting you back in the future because, I, again, I think there's just so much we can delve into. It's been great chatting to you. Thanks very much. It's been lovely to chat with you. Woof, woof, grab your own copy and run, don't walk. Visit companionanimalpsychology.com and click WAG on the menu to see all your purchase options. Alexandra Horowitz, author of Our Dogs Ourselves, the story of a singular bond and the New York Times bestseller, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell and Know, says, Zazie Todd does dogs the immeasurably good favor of taking their happiness seriously. Todd is dialed into the science of dogs and a thoughtful trainer of dogs. Everything she writes about, you want to know. WAG is a welcome addition to the books geared to helping you help your dog. And Bronwyn Dickey, author of Pitbull, The Battle Over an American Icon writes, fortunately for all of us, Dr. Zazie Todd has written a delightful, compact, evidence-based guide to building better partnerships with our dogs and sending more joy their way. Do you want to win a free copy of WAG? 
If you do, email woof at petprofessionalguild.com before May 5th and tell us why we should mail you a free copy. Be witty, be creative, be unique, and you will soon have this fabulous book on your own shelf. Thank you for listening. That's us for the day. To learn more about the Pet Professional Guild, visit www.petprofessionalguild.com. And remember, have fun training.